So, well, today uh, we're going to uh, wrap up a series that we started months ago on the theme of uh, unity in the church. And we're wrapping it up today because uh, this week, as you probably gathered, Maservies are showing up, we, we think, about Thursday. And then next Sunday, uh, Aaron is going to start a four-week introductory series. And uh, so I won't be speaking again until the last Sunday in uh, uh, July. So I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to bring this series to a close, and uh, that's what we're going to do. So let's, let's do a little bit of rehearsing here of, of where we've been in this series. <clears throat> we started out looking at the final prayer of Jesus in John chapter 20, and we noticed that one of the important themes in uh, that prayer is the theme of the unity of his disciples. Jesus prays for unity. Uh, it is a unity which is the same kind of unity that is present in the Trinity. God himself is one, though God is three. And God is one in a number of ways, one in love, in uh, mutual uh, uh, concern and care, uh, mutual honor for each of the persons. We've got here the, uh, <clears throat> this beautiful Trinity icon, and uh, even with the bowed heads, you get that sense of mutual deference one to another. So, Jesus says, uh, I, I pray, Father, that these disciples may be one as you and I are, are one. Uh, one in love, one in purpose. And, uh, and what was striking to me for the last several years is to see how that unity is tied to the mission of the church. Uh, in other words, evangelistic effectiveness in reaching people with Christ is linked to our expression of unity one for another. So Jesus prays uh, that, that they may be one, that the world may believe. You know, sometimes uh, as Christians get talking about evangelism, you can get the feeling that the most important thing is the right technique or the right way to say the message or the right technology or the right preacher. <laughs> uh, Jesus doesn't seem to be all that concerned about that. What he prays for is that believers might learn to live out the unity that they have in the Trinity. And it's on the basis of that that Jesus says the world will know and the world will believe. Well, that's pretty significant. Especially as we 
look at the American church, which has for the last couple of years been rent by disunity. That's, that's very significant. All right, well, we looked at that prayer, and, and then we looked at a couple of passages from the Apostle Paul. We looked at Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, uh, be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he goes on to explain how that unity is rooted in a common life, a common experience that we have, because we've trusted in Jesus, we've been forgiven, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, these are realities that all believers experience. And Paul says on the basis of that shared reality, that shared life in God, that we are one. We, we don't have to manufacture a unity. That unity exists. Our challenge is to preserve it. Right? That's, that's the challenge. <clears throat> we looked also at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says now, you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. Different parts, different functions, but one body. And that's a powerful image too, isn't it? That, that Jesus has a presence in the world. His body in the world. His earthly body that was raised up is not here. But there is a body present, and that's you and me. And we are to be the incarnate presence of Jesus in the world. And, uh, and we have this common life that we share. So in spite of the divergence, the differences among us, the variety of gifts, uh, there is one body, says Paul, and, and we need to learn how to live as the one body. <clears throat> And that leads him to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where we've camped out now for about two months, I guess, uh, listening to what Paul has to say about love. Because as he talks about unity, remember that at the end of chapter 12, he, he immediately slides into this discussion of love. He says, I want to show you the most excellent way to live out unity. And it's, you live it out by learning to love. You hear that? That's very important. By learning to love. Because in our natural state or our sinful state, we don't know how to do it very well. So we have to learn. We have to be instructed. We have to practice the behaviors of love. <clears throat> The, uh, the thing about love that, that I find, I don't know if, if you're like me, I suspect you are, I find that loving in the abstract is very easy. Loving in the particulars, loving particular people, that's hard. It's also easier to love people at a distance, you know? I mean, I love the whole world. Uh, it's the people that are close to me that create the problems. Mother Teresa, 
says it is easy to love the people far away. It is not always easy to love those close to us. Bring love into your home, for this is where our love for each other must start. Yeah, so people are big on love. What the world needs now, right, is love, love, love. And that's true. But a lot of those same people are getting divorced. And that's because it's easier to love in the abstract or it's easier to love at a distance than it is to love close up. So Mother Teresa has got a point there. And it's not just in the family. It's not just loving our children or loving our spouses. But what about the church? And, you know, not just the worldwide church. Again, that's relatively easy. But it's the people we go to church with. It's the people that sit in the pew next to us or in front of us or in back of us. It's those people that we find the challenge in loving. And so we have to work at it. That, so Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, give every effort, give, give all diligence, exert yourself to love. We have a romantic notion of love, which is powerful in our culture. Romantic notion of love says you don't have to work at love. Love happens to you. That's a lie. You have to work at love. Love is hard. All right, so that's where we've been. As we wrap up today, uh, I want to look basically at one verse. I want to uh, think about those who make peace. Because there's a number of ideas that go together here, aren't there? There's unity, there is love, and then there's peace. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4. And Jesus' uh, little brother, James... Younger brother, I don't know if he was smaller or not, but his younger brother uh, talks about some of these same themes and particularly focuses on peace. So we're going we're gonna to spend a few minutes in James chapter 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I highlighted in yellow some terms we've seen before. When Paul talks about love, you know, he says, love is not jealous. 
Love is not proud or arrogant. Well, James is working with the same themes here. Jealousy, selfish ambition. And where these exist, he says, there's disorder and every evil thing. All right, so we're in the same basic framework, but what James is going to emphasize is peace. He does that in those last couple verses. And it's particularly the final verse that I want to reflect on a little bit. Uh, Some scholars feel that that this verse has the flavor of an independent proverb that may have been floating around that, that James actually captures here to round out this paragraph. Well, those kinds of speculations you can never uh, solve one way or the other. But, uh, but I agree that it does have a little bit the flavor of uh, a proverb. Huh? The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's just tease out some thoughts here, okay? <laughs> Let's think about the garden of peace. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All right, so we've got fruit and we've got planting involved and I think some other ideas woven in there as well. The fruit of righteousness, that's that's worth thinking about. Fruit is the result of of life and growth, and the fruit of righteousness, I think, is the, the kind of stuff that he's been talking about in this chapter, All right? The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. This, this is the fruit which is righteousness. There's a garden idea here, right? Uh, Gardens are places of life and beauty and order. At least some gardens are. I have to admit that my gardens were not always places of uh, beauty or order, but uh, my daughter is the gardener in the family right now, and... Uh, her gardens look like that. They've got the vegetables and then there's the flower parts that are planted to bring in the butterflies and all the rest. And they are, it, it is a place of beauty. It's a place of life and so forth. Uh, and the work of the church, what you and I are called to, is to be people who shape a garden like that. A garden where righteousness is produced. Where beauty, that is the beauty of transformed lives, become visible, become manifest. A garden where good seed is put into the ground. James here is working with some of the same ideas that Jesus worked with. Remember in Matthew chapter 13, the first of the parables given in that chapter, 
is about a farmer who went out to sow seed. And uh, he sowed the seed, and it falls on different kinds of soil, different places. <clears throat> the farmer didn't have a modern grain drill. He just broadcast the seed by hand. And so some of that seed fell on uh, the pathway where people walked continually. It was hard and packed, and <clears throat> there was no purchase there for the seed. It just lay dormant, and before long, the birds came and picked it up. And then some of the seed also fell in rocky ground, and it had enough moisture and uh, soil there to get a start and, and to germinate and begin to send down roots, but it couldn't get very far because of the rocks. And the result was <clears throat> that, uh, that that seed also was not productive. And some fell in an area where there were thistles and thorns, and though it sprang up, the seed germinated and sprang up, it was soon choked out by the thorns. But then the other seed fell into fertile ground, prepared ground, and it grew up, and Jesus said, that this seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So there's a gardening idea, right? An agricultural idea. Prepared soil, good soil, protected soil, and good seed falling on it. And that's that's what James is talking about. He's talking about sowing good seed and having it grow and producing a crop. Lives transformed by the gospel. And we're to be part of that. And this is where he then talks about peacemakers. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's where you get productivity. That's where you get spiritual life. That's where a church becomes vibrant. That's where God brings people to find salvation. This is why unity is linked to the effectiveness of the gospel. When, when the seedbed is uh, not peaceful, when there's uh, ongoing warfare among the members of the body, over whatever, when that's true, I think God is very hesitant to bring new believers, or potential new believers. Because in his wisdom, he knows that though the seed may germinate there, it's not going to have a healthy situation. James, James gets that. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The church needs peace 
makers. Peacemakers are junior gardeners. Remember, uh, you remember one of my favorite pictures, right? It's It's the dad building with the son holding his own little hammer and trying to help. That's the idea of divine human partnership. And it's right here. Right? The chief gardener is God himself. Jesus says, I'm the vine. My father is the gardener. The father is the one who plants the seed, who nourishes and cares for it. But here's the thing. The father does that largely, not entirely, but he does it largely through partners, junior gardeners, people who will share his love and care for the garden, who will nourish and tend the little seeds as they germinate, protect them from all kinds of things, right? So junior gardeners prepare the ground, they cultivate it, they plant good seed, and then they protect the seed as it germinates and begins to grow. It's, uh, it's quite a task, actually. It's quite a task because, uh, among other things, there are uh, dangerous critters out there that attack the gardener. There's uh, Mr. Bunny, and there's Mr. Whitetail. We have, we, I, uh, my daughter has a garden. We have it because it's on property that I don't even own anymore. But <clears throat> I still say we. So we have a garden. And uh, Mr. Whitetail and Mr. Bunny, uh, they're a threat to the garden. So my daughter recently invested in a a sprayer that you hook up to your hose and it has a motion sensor on it. And uh, we did find out it works very well on the neighbor's chickens <laughs> who like to invade our lawn and our garden. And uh, the chickens have been thoroughly scared. I'm not sure about the deer yet. The other day she went out and uh, Mr. Bunny was sitting right in the middle of the garden. So I suspect that he's small enough and moves slowly enough that he doesn't trip the sensor. So I'm not sure what the next step is. But, you know, you have to work hard to to protect from these uh, invaders who have designs on the garden. And it takes a lot of care. You really have to care for those little plants. <clears throat> when I was a teenager growing up on uh, the family farm, my uncle, it was my uncle who owned it, but I worked there for a number of years. 
And uh, we would plant, he would plant about 100 acres of corn every year over in Bedminster. <clears throat> and that's a lot of rows. I mean, you can just go out driving and see the corn coming up right now. 100 acres is a lot of rows of corn. And we were not the modern farmer with the giant machines. We had a couple smaller tractors, and we had, we had a two-row, hear me, a two-row cultivator. Two rows, can you believe it? With thousands of rows of corn out there. A two-row cultivator. And uh, my uncle tried to get through all 100 acres twice during the early part of the growing season. First, when the corn was up like it is in some of the fields right now, just a couple inches high. <clears throat> and the grass would start to grow and threaten to overtake the corn. So he would go through with this two-row cultivator, sitting on a tractor, sometimes up till 2 o'clock in the morning, just putting along as slow as you can believe, every now and then even getting off the tractor to uncover a corn plant that had been beaten down by the dirt rolling. Going super slow, because when they're small, you don't want the dirt ro rolling too fast, right? <laughs> and he was so particular, it frustrated everybody. Nobody else could cultivate that corn, even if he had to stay up all night to get through it. Nobody else could do it. Why? Because he didn't trust anybody else to care for the corn the way he did. You know, folks, we, we need... We need people who will cultivate the young sprouts. <laughs> cultivate it with a love and a care that my uncle had for those corn plants. James says, the fruit of righteousness, lives transformed by the power of the gospel, that fruit is sown in peace by peacemakers. People are very careful who ask the question, how is this going to impact, especially those who are young in the faith? I've got some people in my own family who have given up on church because they're cynical about what they have experienced in the life of God's people. And that's not just my family, friends. That is a nationwide phenomenon. And I know there are cultural forces out there that are playing into that. But a lot of that problem is rooted in us. Our communities, our churches, are very frequently not peacemaking places. 
peace-protecting places, and they're not a good place to nurture growth. And, you know, James understands that. Paul understood it. Hmm. And Jesus understood it. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God because they are like God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that the gospel is a story about your love for us and your desire to establish peace in the midst of alienation and enmity while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. We thank you for the peace which you've given to us in Jesus. And Lord, we, we have a desire to be like you, to be like him. To learn how to be peacemakers. So that we may create those places of safety and healing and wholeness that the world needs and the world desires. God, forgive us for not being as faithful as we should be to that vision and to that purpose. We pray that as we look to the days ahead and the excitement of Maservi's joining us, Lord, may we have a renewed commitment to being the body of Christ, the one body, united in him, being diligent, giving every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord and coming King, in whose name we pray, amen.